0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Please don't get mad at me. The scripture for today that Jesus shared really made people angry and upset. And it comes to us from Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed, on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing so let's find out why this was so upsetting
1: normal when will we ever return to normal i hear that expression all the time It's almost as if we're waiting for something to happen. Enough vaccines to get out there. Enough of being able to dissipate the effects of the virus so that we can get our lives back to normal. We want to go back to pre-COVID. But when you listen to people who have spent a great deal of time looking at our world before COVID— and our world after COVID, they said there is no going back. There will be a new normal, but not the normal that was before. They talk about in the areas of education, that education may be changed for the foreseeable future. They talk about work, and how people have grown accustomed to be able to work at home, and, and now will they actually return to the offices full-time, or will companies realize there's a more effective way to use their personnel? Entertainment. Will we return to the large mass gatherings of people and groups? No one knows for sure. But the one that probably attracted my attention this week was the economy when will our economy return to normal some people think that once we get the virus under control that we will see and e- the economy just take off and boom and flourish that good times are ahead for us financially then there's others that aren't as optimistic they're skeptical They look at the trajectory of our economy before COVID and how it was doing this, despite what everyone says as far as the flourishment of wealth, what they were looking at is debt. And even though debt reduction took place, there's still a huge amount of debt for the consumer, the individual, as well as our country, and as well as throughout the world. And they believe that because of COVID, that if something doesn't change after COVID, we're in trouble. For example, James K. Galbraith, who teaches at the University of Texas in Austin, he's an economist, and he says the following. He argues that when the pandemic has passed— there will be a vast tangle of unpaid debts that cannot be cleared. So let's just pause right there. He's not only talking about personal debt. He's also talking about small business debt, corporate debt. And he continues, and thus the whole financial system will have to be reset. There's a certain presumption that what can be shut down, perhaps like we saw during COVID, can just be reopened. And that the natural course of events is a rapid economic recovery. And that is what he's taking issue with. Every business and household has assets and liabilities. And what's happened is that their assets have been diminished but their liabilities have not. To make it very simple, your income has diminished. Your debt has either maintained or gone up because of COVID. And this is where it gets interesting. Unless the liabilities are somehow taken care of, they're going to be burdened by their debts for a long time to come." This is around us right now, even before COVID. I live downtown Phoenix, and so in the apartment building where we live, there is a lot of graduate students. These students, occasionally when I talk with them, I'll ask them about student debt from their undergrad and now in their graduate school the amount that they owe just from undergrad and now are adding on top of that by going to grad school so that they can go out and have a career is staggering. And then when they do leave, think about having to buy a house on top of that. One individual I remember in particular, he was going to law school, And I don't know if this is just unique to ASU, but he told me that he was not allowed to work for those three years that he was in law school. So the amount of loans that he was having to take, not only to pay for law school, but just to live, was incredible. Now, we could argue, well, he's going to make a ton of money but he's going to have a ton of debt. So he's got his debt from school. He's got his debt if he buys a home. If he buys a car, more than likely he will have debt. There's a real possibility that he might eventually be able to dig himself out from underneath that, but he'll be one of the lucky ones. More and more young people are accepting the idea that they will live their rest of their lives in debt. There is a significant group of our population who live and work to pay off their debt and then have a little left over to take care of the basic necessities of life, and that's it. And they are literally on a precipice that if there is certain things that happen in their life that require more money, that means more borrowing. Just think about what's happening right now with COVID, where companies, where landlords are allowing people to not have to pay a full amount on their debt. What happens when that comes due? That's why this economist says that the only option that we really have, the only option, for in his opinion, is to forgive everyone's debts. Now, if you're like me, my first reaction when I read that was, man, this guy's crazy. He's absurd. And then I get kind of on my high horse and say, well, wait a minute. You know, these people took on that debt. They have a responsibility to pay it all off. And then as I continued to read, I realized that this idea, it's been around for a long, long time. This idea that an individual could come to the point in their lives where they could not pay back their debt no matter how hard they worked existed almost 5,000 years ago not only for a individual, but for entire countries. In Mesopotamia, archaeologists have actually found documents, clay shards, with writing in them, talking about the accumulation of debt and how much people owed. Then they realized that a phenomenon occurred When a new ruler took the throne, when that new ruler took the throne, he would literally forgive everyone's debt. Why? Because the ruler understood that there were circumstances that the average person during his time didn't have control of. You literally relied upon your sustenance by what you could grow. Well, what happened was, if you had some bad years, you could accumulate debt. And if you accumulated enough debt, the person who you owed that to could foreclose on your property. They could take one of your family members and make them an indentured servant. And the ruler understood that if this was to take place, that if a time came when they had to go to war, he couldn't call everyone up to, to go out and fight the battle, because they were indentured to someone else. If they needed new infrastructure built, he needed all hands on deck. But if people owed money to other people, he didn't have access to them. So he would forgive their debt. This continued for decades, for centuries. We even find glimpses of this idea in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15, it talks about a sabbatical year, a Sabbath year. At the end of the seven years, an individual would be forgiven all of their debts. Everything was to be wiped out, clean. So, it's, re- it's basically an economic reset. Everyone's back on the even playing field— in going to seminary and working on my doctorate, the prominent idea was that this never really happened. It was a good idea, but it never really occurred. But the more I read, I began to realize that there seems to be evidence that this did occur. We don't know how frequently, but it did happen. Why? Because about 150 years before Jesus entered into our world, was born into our world. There was a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And Hillel understood that this idea of forgiving debts every seven years was unpopular. It was unpopular for two reasons. Number one, those who lent the money to other people, they were not happy because they would lose a lot of interest or a lot of income coming back to them if they loaned it out. But then, what about during that sixth year? Towards the end of it, someone needed a loan. Would you give it to them? Knowing that within a month it would be forgiven, they wouldn't have to pay you back? So Hillel found a loophole to the Mosaic Law and basically came up with what is called Pro Bowl. The idea that if you needed money— if you needed resources, you would sign a paper giving up your right to claim a forgiveness of debt. As this occurred, more and more debts occurred. The money went out, people borrowed it, and in time, they could not pay it back. And when Jesus enters the scene that is what Jesus ends up being faced with, a society that was in debt. Now, to what degree? We're not sure, but they were in trouble. And in the Gospel of Luke, what's fascinating is that for the first time that Jesus speaks publicly, the writer of the Gospel of Luke has Jesus recite from Isaiah 61. That was the text that was read for us earlier. But I want you to hear a segment of it again. In Luke chapter 4, verse 14, it says Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. And then Jesus picks up the scroll and reads from Isaiah 61, and he says the following. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery to the sight of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've read that text so many times, and I've always taken it metaphorically that Jesus is the one who has come to free us from the burden of sin. And then I realized that there was perhaps a better way to read that text and that the text is purely about economics and in particular, debt. Listen again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, ready, good news to the poor. What about the poor? He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. If you ended up being an indentured servant to another person because of your debt, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord has sent me to have that take and go away goes on, it says, to let the oppressed go free. To let those who are oppressed, those who are suffering under the wages of debt, to be freed. And that's where it really hits home is this last phrase, where he says, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which can easily be tied back to that sabbatical year that Leviticus and Deuteronomy talk about. What Jesus was basically doing was he was kind of thumbing his nose to the rabbis who said, "Eh, you don't have to forgive everyone's debt. Jesus was pointing the finger at the wealthy who held the debts and said, uh-uh, you're destroying our society. And in turn, the Romans heard this. But this isn't the only place that we find this evidence we find it in a place that the majority of us probably aren't even aware of. And that's the Lord's Prayer. It's something that we pray in most churches—I'll back that off—a lot of churches every Sunday. And we chant it together, but we really don't stop and think about it. But the Lord's Prayer, first of all, we need to understand that it developed over time. When Jesus said a prayer, there wasn't someone sitting there going, Oh, wait a, Jesus, can you, can you do that one more time? I missed what you said in between. Can you just one more time for me, please? Uh-uh. They recalled. There seems to be really solid evidence that the earliest form of what we would call the Lord's Prayer appears in what is called the didache, or the teaching of the twelve. Listen to what it says. You shall forgive us our debt, as we also are forgiving our debtors. It's all about debt. Economic debt. The next person who took this Lord's Prayer and gave it meaning, and stayed very close to what the didache actually said was in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew captures the same idea. Hear it again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, this idea is so prevalent. The idea being that we desire us to be free from debt that is oppressing us, and in turn, we also will forgive other people the debts that they owe us. But by the time that Luke comes along and writes the gospel, he adds a different idea. See if you catch it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 4, And forgive us our sins, as we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So for the first time, it's not taken literally anymore. It begins to be a metaphor. And so the text begins to be about forgiving sins. And we lose the power of what Jesus was trying to teach. Read the Gospels, and throughout you'll find examples where Jesus is talking about money, and he's talking about debt. Read the prophets. Same thing. It's all over the place. Some people speculate that because of Jesus' position about debt, that it was that which led to his execution. The rabbis got tired of him questioning their authority to be able to bypass debt and forgive debt. The rulers were tired of it. The Romans were tired of it. So, what do you do? You shut him up. How do you shut him up? You hang him in front of everyone else on a tree and say, Look, if you go against us, the Roman leadership, this is what's going to happen to you. One scholar actually went so far to say, Jesus didn't die for our sins, he died because of debt. Now that may seem extreme, but it needs to be taken seriously, because the amount of debt that existed during that period of time ended up, thirty years after he died, creating a what is called a debt revolt. Listen to what David Finsey says. In sixty six C.E., during the first feast of wood carrying the people broke forth into the upper city and set on fire three houses of the leaders, some public buildings, and this is where it gets interesting, and then began to carry the fire to the archives, being zealous to destroy the contracts of those who had loaned money and to cancel the collection of debts. People got tired of it. They couldn't continue to live that way. And so they stood up and they said, enough. That was how important debt was to Jesus. But what amazes me today is that when I listen to what Christians want to talk about, what is important to them, what they're passionate about, it's not this. Listen to what we're hearing in the media. Listen to what's happening in, in around us when it comes to Christianity. From my perspective, and if I'm wrong, I would love for you to email me and give me a correction on this. But from what my perspective, it's all about three things. Number one, individual salvation. It's about you, and I being saved. That's the most important thing. Number two, abortion. Number three, sex, and especially the LGBTQ plus community. That's where Christians have their focus right now. That's where they're using their political clout right now, that's why there's politicians who will come out on those two, last two issues because they know by talking about those that they will garner votes. And yet, read the gospels. Nowhere does Jesus talk about abortion. Nowhere does Jesus talk about the LGBTQ plus community, same-sex marriage? Nowhere. What Jesus does talk about when it comes to sex is that the only reason you should get divorced is if you commit adultery. But no, we don't want to talk, to even bring that one up, or will we? But what Jesus does talk about is debt. And yet we don't. Why don't we as Christians? take seriously what Jesus was dealing with and realize that we've got the same problem 2,000 years later. But here's what's so frustrating for me is I don't know what to do about it. I'm not an economist. I'm not a politician. Recently, the United Church of Christ, and in particular our conference, The Southwest Conference of the United Church of Christ has started this thing called um, being a part of releasing medical debt. It's a fantastic idea, but does it go far enough? Last Easter, the Pope talked about releasing people from debt, but what's happened since then? I don't have an answer, and all I have is frustration. I say I'm a follower of Jesus, and that's it. So what do I do about this? What do you do about this? A psychologist told me one time that the only way to bring about change in one's life is to begin first with self-awareness. Really becoming aware of yourself and being honest with yourself. So perhaps, if we want to take what Jesus said about debt seriously, that's the first step that you and I have to do. We have to be aware that it was a problem then, And it for sure is a problem now. So now you know. Now I know. What will we do next? Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at theattitudeschurch.org Backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.